Welcome to another episode of True Wisdom, where Andrew and I discuss God's Word. And beyond just regular discussion, we teach and we learn. So this is profitable to us just in our discussion, just in our learning, and just in being able to um, walk along with you guys as we talk about these different topics, these different Bible principles. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Robert, and welcome, guests. So, as we do each and every week, we talk about why true wisdom is so important to us. Um, What's something that you've learned this past season of doing true wisdom? Something I've learned this past season? Um, I've learned that one of the things that that going through this whole teaching thing is, is... and sharing is is useful for it's helping you sometimes forcing you to be able to articulate that which you think you understand right so I remember we did a podcast um, some time back where just as we started I realized that I needed to explain something that I knew inherently but might not be known by the people that we would be presenting it to. And you don't always think about that when you're just, you know, you're studying for yourself, you go through it, you study, you just think you understand it or you do understand it and you don't delve into it a little bit deeper. But I've learned that it's important to make sure you can articulate what you know or do you really know it? That's the truth. That is the very, very essence of the truth. Well, In learning that, why don't we go over our theme verse? Our theme verse is Proverbs 9, 9 and 10. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9, 9 and 10. Excellent. Um... I believe it is my turn to pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to serve you in this way. And in serving you, we often serve ourselves through the gaining of knowledge and and being able to turn that into wisdom and then being able to share that with others. Please be with us as we cover the topic of the day and that it will be meaningful to someone. Amen. 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 All right. So what is the topic of today? Today we're going to talk about resurrection. Resurrection and the Christian. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now that's a long chapter, but we're not doing all of the chapters. We're focusing on a specific part. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to start at verse 12. And we're going to end up at verse 34. Now, one of the things I want to say in terms of principles that you should understand when you're studying the scripture. Do not treat the Bible like an encyclopedia. An encyclopedia is designed to to simply give you information that you can then use in some other aspect of life. But the Bible is not written that way. It is God's intention that you 
that you derive information from it, but it's not written to you as though you'd be sitting in a class hearing. Sometimes it's letters to a person answering a question, presenting some information, um, correcting error, uh, presenting history. It's written from a lot of different perspectives and contexts, and you need to understand those contexts. Because when you're searching for answers and, and you're trying to prove something from scripture, you need to remember how that information was given to someone. Because the way it was given to them may not be answering the specifics of the question you're looking for. You may have to go to multiple places in scripture to come away with the answer. Because again, the Apostle Paul wasn't trying to prove something to you. He may have been simply answering a question that a set of believers had. Okay, so here we're going to be dealing with the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. And it's very interesting to see what question he's answering for them and how we can derive that information. All right, that's 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ Mm -hmm. be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain? Mm -mm. He's not asking a question there. He's asserting that if Christ isn't risen, all of these other things are false. I never said there was a question. I read 12 as a question because it has a question mark. Then is Christ not risen? It felt like you were asking a question. It felt like you were saying, like you were saying, if this isn't the case, isn't this? But that's the way. That's the way English is. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ. I don't see how I can say then is Christ not risen. That's okay, not. So here's here, here's how I here's how I would read it as an example. Fourteen. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. All right. Uh, I can see that more for 14. Um, The reason why 13, Mm -hmm. 13 ends in a colon. And so that colon means that it's continuing. It wouldn't, uh, if you start out with a but, Mm -hmm. you have an if-then statement. 13 is an if-then statement. It's written as an if-then statement. So I don't see how I, I could read it any other way than if then. If but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is then is Christ not risen? That is a classic if right. then statement. Agreed. It just sounded like you were asking a question at the end of thirteen. That's why I was saying it's not really a question. He basically says, How how did you come to this conclusion? Because if he's not risen, then the following things are all false. And he goes on to enumerate them over the next few verses. Yeah, but I, I do see a difference in the way 13 and 14 would be read just because of the punctuation. I know you say it's not a question, but it is mm-hmm. classically written as at least the way it's translated into English. That is a classic if then statement, which is a it's, I guess you could say it's not a question, but it's written in a way such that I just read it as an if-then statement. Is there a, 
So he's making statements according to what they believe. Right. He says, if you have, if you don't believe, if, if we preach that Christ is risen from the dead, how can you come to the conclusion that there is no resurrection of the dead? Aha, you because see, you no said resurrection of the dead. Huh? You said how? That's, that's a question, yes. Yeah, no, no, so that's 12. <laughs> and then he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. And in fact, we're false witnesses because we testify of God that he raised up Christ, who he did not raise up if the dead be not, if the dead rise not. You see, and I think this is important, even something as small as where and is is in the statement as we read these things to fully understand. So in 13, because it's then is Christ not risen, classically in English that becomes a question. Right. In in old English, he's asserting. Yes. Yes. And and this is the importance. And I believe sometimes this is why people go to other translations. I, be, I know. That's, because that's they true. right, they don't get the nuances of it. So if it, it, it can be harder. Right. If people. it had said if it had been written out, then Christ is not risen, we take that to mean. And it I know I annoy my family as well when I read devotionals. And the way the English is written, I'm saying that's not conveying the message they intend to convey. The words might be in a certain order, or they might be trying to hit on a certain theme. But if we're not Mm -hmm. purposeful about how we write, especially something like a devotion, it can really cause problems. So uh, while this is not the intent of the podcast, I think it is important for us to uh, really hone in as we read the Bible don't just blow through it, but really take a look at the words. What is he trying to say? So, yes, there's a good okay. point that this is not, he's making statements, not questions. Right. And and this is, as you pointed out, um, this is something that, that trips many people up with the King James, and which is why they, they avoid it. And and so I can appreciate that. Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm hardcore about my use of the King James, not anybody else's, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> that, right. I like using it, and I will use it above other translations whenever possible. But if someone reads a different translation in my hearing, I'm not rising up to slay them. They they get to do what comes <laughs> up to them, right? Because at the end of the day, if you pick, you know, this is why we're not doing Latin, right? right it's right. not we're not going to pick the most awkward way or tell people that unless they learn Greek, they can't read the Bible, the New Testament, anyway. Um, no, it's important for us to know what's being translate, what's being conveyed. And if you don't understand it, do find a translation that helps you to understand it. Just be advised that there are difficulties with translations, especially when it comes to prophecy. Yeah. So what I often do is, if I read something in the King James I don't understand, I'll look at a couple of other translations and mm-hmm. see if I can get the gist of the meaning. Because sometimes... Um, what one translation will say is very far from what 10 of them will say. And then I'll be yeah. less likely to follow that one in other instances. Yeah. All right. So we, you did read 14 and 15, but for continuity, I'll uh, read them again. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witness of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, 
If so, be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all we are of all men most miserable. What does verse 19 mean? In fact, we should talk about the whole thing right in this section. But verse 19 is, is intense. Well, verse 19 is basically saying without the resurrection, mm-hmm. those who follow Christ, we're basically wasting our time. Mm-hmm. Now that's interesting because you'd never think that that you would hear that. We hear people say all the time that even if there was no hope of the resurrection, just living in Christ is enough. And Paul's like, no, no, it's really not. But it's, it, it really isn't. Um, what It is not, the Lord himself said, following him, we will suffer what he suffered. Right. So if he suffered all that he suffered to not be risen, to not go back and sit on the right hand of God. Why would we follow that? That does not make any sense. I've honestly never thought about it that way. Yeah, the blessed hope, that's it. I was talking to a friend just yesterday, and what she mm-hmm. said specifically was, we know that all life isn't going to end now, because the, most of the people I know are really miserable right now. Really. The, the amount of things that they're going through, it's really tough for them right now. So it's that mm-hmm. blessed hope that you hang on to why we go through the things we go through. Absolutely. Listen, Hebrews 11, and this is one of the things I'll, I'll point this out. We sometimes get hung up on, on the primary purpose or the most popular understanding of a particular passage, Right? So Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter, okay? But Hebrews 11 is also the blessed hope chapter. We don't emphasize that part, Mm. right? We don't emphasize that part. But in talking about the faith in the first part of Hebrews 11, he talks about faith as a substance of things hoped for. That's how it starts, right? We say faith is the substance we just skipped the second half of what everything was about. The evidence of things not seen. He goes through and talks about by faith this person, that person, the other person, right? But Hebrews 11.10, talking about Abraham. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That is, that's the first time he gets snuck in there, right? He goes through by faith Moses, by faith this person the walls of Jericho, and then he comes down to the end, right? He comes down to the end. He says, what more can I say? For time would not would fail me to speak of all of these other people. And then he writes this in verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Okay, goes on some more 
And then let's look at the last two verses in this chapter. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. There's, there's the hope of the resurrection all throughout this. We emphasize the faith, by faith they did, by faith they did. But by faith, they look forward to the blessed hope. That's what this chapter is saying. Yep. Wouldn't be nearly as impressive as by faith they lived a particularly decent life and then perished. And that was it. And that was it. Yeah. Now, what verse was I at? Yes, 20. 20 is what you have to do. Yes. But now, is Christ risen from the dead? Let me start that over. I paused in the wrong place. But now (laughs) is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Okay, Paul. Well, no, do 22, and then, we'll, then we will. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay. Very important passages here, right? First fruits, we should probably do a podcast on that, but the general sense was at the very beginning of the harvest, just as the harvest was coming to fruition, um, the first set of things that were the first set of things that were ripe were dedicated to God as a reminder of stewardship. Remember our whole tithe podcast? Right. As a reminder that it was God who gave them to you. The very first thing, the very first fruit that came out, whether it was from the grain or from the trees, whatever, they were given to God. They were returned as an offering. And then the rest of the offering was yours. Just a reminder that it was God who, who did this for you. Right. So Christ, and those who were resurrected with him at his resurrection, right? The graves of them that left were opened and some number of people came out that's not given to us. They were given their immortal bodies and they went to heaven with him when he ascended, okay? But they're the first fruits. It's, it's some number that's a relatively small number to the total number that will be saved. And they were given... Um, and so that's that's the first fruit principle. Again, they are the pre-harvest, the very beginning of the harvest, and then there's a larger harvest that is to come. The other thing about this passage is, by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. This emphasizes the humanity of Christ. It's the humanity of Christ that we owe a lot to. The divinity of Christ we owe a lot to as well. But it is the humanity of Christ. Adam failed as a man. Christ had to come and succeed as a man. Right, right. Okay? And then 22, as in Adam all died, not because of Adam's sin in the sense that we inherit his sin. We inherit his mortality. He never obtained immortality. And therefore, as his children, we don't have immortality either, not by genetics. Mm-hmm. And so we inherited death. Even if we behaved the best that we could, we would just live and perish at some point in time 
our bodies would expire because from him we inherited death. But in Christ, we inherit eternal life. Right. Right. So we did 22. Now 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Okay, we're going to stop here one second because the next couple of verses are going to be very interesting. Um, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. After every, after all of the punishment is done at the end of the millennium, the last thing that will die is death. Because after death dies, nothing else will ever die. But you know what? Which, by the way, Go ahead. Which, by the way, undermines this whole perpetual burning in hell nonsense. Well, yes. Because misery and death have to go. And if people are perpetually burning, misery is still around. And death will, will be just waiting in the wings for that misery to end somewhere. Right? Misery and death will be gone. God will wipe tears from all faces. So, uh, one thing that jumped out to me mm -hmm. is the end of verse 24. Mm -hmm. When he shall have put down mm -hmm. all rule and all authority and power. Mm -hmm. But that's not referencing his. That's all earthly rule that satanic rule, that's all of that. Mostly. When he, we get to 27 and 28. All right. Foreshadowing. Okay, verse 27. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And this is where Paul loses me. <laughs> read 28 in order to get 27. We'll read 28, then we'll talk about 27 and 28 together. Because the he and the him are not the same person. Okay. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that putteth all things under him, that God may be all in all. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. So right now, God is separate from the earth because of the division? Um, what division are you referring oh, to? Oh, sin itself. Yeah, well, yes, the Father, the Father stays back from all of that, right? We can't come in the presence of the The Father doesn't veil his presence in any significant way. Whatever the reasoning for that is, that will probably be explained to us in eternity. But the Father doesn't fail his presence in any particular way. The Holy Spirit comes in different forms in order to interact with us, and Christ has multiple times failed himself in different ways to interact with us, most recently veiling himself in humanity. Um, so it's always one of the messengers that have to interact with us, lest we perish outright. 
the father, you know, the son is the agent of the father for creation and for redemption. And so all things that oppose the kingdom of God are going to be put down by the son. And then once everything has been put down, then even the son will, um, even the son will relinquish control. To right. the Father, right, right, and it's, it's and Paul is very clear. He says he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under. Him. So it's the Father who's making sure that all of this stuff is going to be under the jurisdiction of the Son. But all does not include himself, mm-hmm. right? Paul saying it, it should be obvious. I, I'm going to say it, but it should be obvious that all doesn't include the person doing the putting, right? Yeah, that's very true. So, if we were to read 27 with pronoun, with with nouns rather than pronouns. For the Father has put all things under the Son's feet. But when the Father saith all things are put under the Son, it is manifest that the Father is accepted, which did put all things under the Son. And when all things shall be subdued under the Son, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, the Father, that put all things under him, the Son, that God may be all in all. There will be one governance. There won't be multiple governance. There'll be one clear governance. The Godhead is okay with hierarchy. God's people should also be okay with hierarchy. And just just to make it plain, besides God, who else has authority right now? Well, Satan has authority because he stole the authority of Adam. That he had his, he had his own heavenly authority and usurped the authority of Adam. Correct. So no longer will the earth be under the authority of of man. Well, I wouldn't say it that way. Ah, okay. Right, because we went back a few verses, and by man came death, but by man comes the resurrection of the dead, mm-hmm. and it's that second man who's going to who. Is inheriting all yep. right? So it's still going to be man. This, this is why the incarnation of Christ is so critical because of all these things that need to fit. Right? Christ can't lose his divinity, but he's doing this as a man. He set aside. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which that's another one of those phrases that always confuses me, because I mm-hmm. think a bit linearly, um, but in essence, it applies in this condition. He put aside his divinity to do the job he needed to do as a man. Right, and and he continues to put it aside, like. Christ can't lose his divinity. It's an essential essence of his being. But he's also taken on humanity, which is now also an essential essence of his being. And in his humanity, he's doing all of these things. He's doing them under the direction of the Father. 
He's doing, and I don't mean to say that he never did things under the direction of the Father pre-incarnate. There, the Bible is kind of clear that things are done under the direction of the Father regardless. Yeah, but they okay? were one. They weren't one at the time. What do you mean? When Jesus was here on earth, it was a different kind of... They weren't one at the time, and that's why when Jesus was separated from the Father at Gethsemane, he felt that that pain of the of the separation. With but I would, North, argue, I would argue that that proves that he was one, except at Gethsemane and on the cross. Yes, but the effort... The human effort that he had to put in to be one, it's something that we can all achieve. This is, this is part of why he, be, he became a man. But right. it was an extraordinary effort in that we don't do it normally. It's extraordinary in the fact that it is not inherent in our being to spend as much time away apart and praying. And that's how he was able to understand what the Father needed. One, be, prior to him becoming human... He and the Father were one. They didn't have to commute. Well, it was just natural for them to commute in the same way. Well, I think I think it's fair to consider that it was also natural for him because he had he clearly had the nature that we have, but he also had a divine nature too. And his if he had failed to cultivate all of the essential things that he's been teaching us need to be cultivated, he would have fallen just like us. It wasn't yes. impossible to fall. He had to do those things. The um, There are probably things about the incarnation. I shouldn't even say probably. There are things about the incarnation. It's called the mystery of the incarnation, after all, that we're going to learn later. It, it's really interesting because he needs to be divine, needs to be a man, and yet can't be something we couldn't be, but yet was something that we aren't, right? It's, it's a very detailed thing. We have to accept a lot of this by faith because our intellect is really not, is not uh, up to the Equipped, task of right. simply right. philosophizing about it successfully. Right. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Okay, Paul, mm. let's, let's, let's deal with So Paul, you know how Paul is. You know how Paul is. He's been arguing this whole position. He asked that question in the beginning. He made some assertions. And then he was like, that's nonsense. And went on to explain how this works. And then he comes to the end and he's like, because really, the same people you're listening to about there being no resurrection of the dead, these are the people that die, These are the people that baptize people who are dead. Why would they go through that? <laughs> right? There's no resurrection. Exactly. What, what would be the point? If someone died in sin or not in sin, but that was the end, why would you need to do anything to alter the state? Right. So he's not asserting, and some people have come to this conclusion erroneously, He's not asserting that baptism for the dead is, is good or right. He's saying that even the people who have bad theology in other areas recognize that there's something after the, the death. That's why they do this baptism for the dead, because why would they bother if there was nothing that came after that? Right, right. Okay. And it goes back to us understanding that this is not doctrine he's teaching, it's a question he's asking because of a question that was asked of him. And if you don't understand the context 
of 1 Corinthians 15, you will necessarily come to some crazy conclusion about what Paul is teaching or not teaching. All right. So, verse 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. We see that today. We see that chapter 20, uh, verse 23. 33. I said 23. (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. Verse 33 should be put on every social media post. Every single social media post and now media posts because let us not just think it's only social media that has um, evil communication we really should be looking at all media through the lens of first corinthians 15 33 and 34 Mm -hmm. and 34 we're going to end at awake to righteousness and sin not for some have not the knowledge of god I speak this to your shame. Okay. Now, I'm going to come back. I knew I knew for certain that you were going to tackle 33, but there's an extra thing I want to mention about it. The All way right. that you mentioned it just now is completely legitimate, and it's the way we typically look at that verse. Mm-hmm. But in the context of why he throws that verse in here, and not in a discussion about moral purity and licentiousness and all of this. He's saying, you guys need to pay attention. If you have bad communication, if you're promoting bad ideas, if your doctrine is unsound and you communicate it, it will corrupt whatever good you're doing. He's saying that in the context of this whole discussion. So the the application that you have for it is completely on point. But he has a special application in why he brought it up here. It's it's valid in the generic sense in which you brought it up, and it's valid in the specific sense. If you embrace bad technology, it will undermine the good aspects of your technology. Of your technology. If you, <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> theology, because I'm thinking about social media, and I got technology stuck in my head. If you embrace bad theology. It will undermine the good aspects of your theology. And I will say this. One of the things that I've seen over the past decade, which is a pattern guaranteed, whenever I see a person or a group of people accept a heresy or a false doctrine, in short order, they've accumulated some more. And it was amazing to me in the beginning because the way it would come up is we'd have all of these Bible studies and discussions and someone would have something that seemed slightly off the wall. Be like, where did they come up with that? You start digging into it and you're trying to make sure that it's legit and it's not just some new light that you just haven't been exposed to. And what I found was if I took the time to go through it and try and iron it out, 
if enough time passed, if the studies took long, or in fact, I said, eh, I'm not sure, I'm going to keep an eye on this. If that person was in error, if that doctrine is in error, very soon the person picks up an error that I recognize. And if you give them enough time, and there are enough people in the group, it happens faster when you have more people, all of a sudden they're up to three errors. And so for me, this passage, this verse 33, don't be deceived. When someone gets a key aspect of theology incorrect, especially when they're a teacher, not just a person who believes something that's wrong, they grew up, went to church, whatever, a teacher of, of righteousness, when they get something that's wrong, if they don't swiftly correct it, they pick up other things that are wrong and it becomes obvious that they're wrong. Or at least obvious to you because it's not obvious to them. They tend to stay there unless a Damascus experience shows up. Yes. the And I think that's one of the areas that we have to be very careful about um, when we have organizations, or even on the church level, which promotes the infallible nature of the leader of that church, mm-hmm. you inherently have a problem, because yes, there is no do. human that is infallible. Nope, except Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus. That's yeah. it. So, yes, thank you for this uh, This devotion that we were able to cover. Um, it's interesting how you took the last text, even though we apply it, I applied it to social media. You're talking specifically about doctrine. Um, and well, it has I, a narrow application to that, definitely, based right. on where he threw it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's key, because sometimes we may just look at, oh, well, I'll just ignore the media itself, and that way I can avoid bad doctrine. But you have to you have to be wary of it in your own home, as well as your oh, yeah. own church. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. In a certain sense, it gets narrowed, meaning it doesn't just mean, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't just mean, it doesn't only apply to the broad communication that you see through life. Right, so in that sense, it's now it's a little bit narrower than that, um, but it's anything that can affect your theological understanding, which expands it again. Yes, indeed. All right, so go ahead and pray us out, and we'll close. Oh. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for this passage that you've uh, inspired us to study this time. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and how he went back and forth with the Corinthians to help them. We thank you for verse 33 in verse Corinthians 15. Help us to understand that in every facet of life. Help us to recognize it as we look around us at the, at the things that are being promoted through media. Help us to recognize it as we study as it pertains to theology and Bible study and understanding at that level. Bless us. Help us to rightly divide your words of truth. Help us to seek true wisdom from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so we thank you. This this was an interesting devotion. This was an interesting discussion. 
Um, we took a couple of twists and turns I didn't expect. And if you have any questions about what we've covered or said, or um, you have a counterpoint to something we've brought up, go ahead and write to us. True wisdom at spaceage-llc.com. Keep it looking out. Um, we will have changes coming soon. Uh, as well as you can reach us on Twitter at truewisdom underscore pod. And Andrew has a podcast as well with more details. You could reach him at rightly divide the word of truth at biblestudy.asbzone.com on all the same platforms, podcast platforms that we are here with Truism. All right, so we thank you for listening, and we pray you will be blessed.